So in light of all the change that's taking place, in light of uh, us moving into the morning slot with two services, uh, it's going to be inconvenient for some people, uh, and in light of us starting life groups again, before everything was online, now we're going to encourage people to meet in person in a safe way. In light of all that, the question that came to my mind today was this, so why do we even gather? I mean, why do we even care about one another? Why should we invest our time, our energy, our resources in a way that we are intentionally connecting with one another in the church? Why do we gather as a church? That's the question that I want to answer today because you know what has been, being, been developed over the, over the last couple of months with the pandemic. Now, really, every church is live streaming their service. You have options to give online. If you want, you can do everything that you do here online. You can listen to God's word. You can listen to a great praise band online. You can sing in your room in your pajamas. And you can enjoy your time right after service. You don't have to worry about bumping into anyone. You don't have to worry about driving through traffic or getting out of the parking lot. All you have to do is just you know, go back to your ordinary life. So with all that, we have to ask the question, in light of all the technology and the culture today, why should we still make an effort? Why should we still be intentional about meeting together? That's the question I want to answer today. And in order to answer that question, first we have to look at this wonderful summary of the entire book of Hebrews that's in verse 19, 20, and 21. It's really a summary of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it can be summarized as this. Through Jesus, through Christ, we have access to the presence of God. Through Jesus, through Christ, we have access to the full presence of God. It's only through Jesus that we have access to God. And you see that in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us today because when we think about meeting God, we think about church and we don't charge you to come to church. It's not a a big deal that you show up on Sundays, but uh, back in the day when this was written for Jews, when they came to church or their church was going to the tabernacle or uh, later on the temple, they always brought a sacrifice, an animal with them. And it's not like they could come into the temple or they could enter into the tabernacle confidently, but everything that they did was, was kind of restricted. They had to follow exact steps and they could only worship in a way that there has to be a high priest that, that gives sacrifices on their behalf, that prays on their behalf. So there's all, all these, these steps that, that needs to take place for them to worship God, to meet God. And if you think about the place that they met, the, the tabernacle or the, the temple, the way that it was laid out is it was, there was this outer court on the outside. It was like a parking lot, basically. Anyone can come in. Um, there were people who, who were there to hang out, uh, people who were there uh, bringing all their families and, uh, and the animals that they, they brought together. And then you had this tent or this meeting place later on in the temple, which was called the holy place. And the holy place was a place where only selected people, the priests, could go in. And so after making a sacrifice, uh, all the animals that the people brought, they would make a sacrifice. And then the priests would go into the holy place. And when you go into the holy place, at the end of the holy place, there's this place called the most holy place. I mean, that's like a, a very original name. The holy of holies, the most holy place. And this place was separated from the holy place. There was this thick curtain uh, that was probably a couple inches thick uh, that was separating this 
place called the holy place uh, from the holy of holies. And what people believed was that the presence of God, the fullness of God, dwelt in the holies of holies. And, and so it was a big deal for them, seeing God's presence. In fact, only once a year, one person, the high priest, was able to enter into the holy of holies. It was restricted. Uh, God's presence was concealed. His glory was concealed. In order to enter in this place, you had to follow all these different rituals and steps. And the moment yet you go into the small space, the first thing that you have to do is you have to light up an incense so it would create smoke. Uh, it's not for the smell. It's more for the sight. Um, it, it would kind of fill this room with, with smoke so that the high priest wouldn't know exactly what's going on. And you might ask, why don't, wouldn't they want to know what's exactly going on? Well, it's because they believe that if a person, a human being, encountered the full presence of God, they would die. That, that's what they believed. So they are very careful. They are, um, uh, this is a delicate process. They have to follow exactly what they were told to do. They were risking their lives, basically, to do this job. And just based on that, we should be thankful for our jobs. Because many of us, we don't have to risk our lives in order to get the job done. A high priest, literally, they, they laid down their lives. Every single time they went into the Holy of Holies, they're like, would I make it out this time? And they had, they had a rope connected to their, their, um, their leg, and they had this small bell that would, that would ring uh, as they're moving. And if it didn't make a sound, uh, the people on the outside, they, they knew that, okay, something happened inside. Maybe that person didn't have the right heart, the right intention, so they died, and so they would do, they, what they would do is they would drag the person out. And that's how serious it, it was to be in the presence of God. The fullness of God was something that was terrifying to the people of God. You think about Exodus 19 where the Israelites, they came to this mountain and that mountain was literally on fire. It was covered with smoke and, and Moses was like, okay, we're going to go up there. And the people are like, no, we're not. There's lightning, there's thunder. People are terrified. They're saying, Moses, you go up on our behalf to spend time with God. We're going to stay down here because we don't want to be near because we know that we're sinful and God is holy. Now, why do, I, why do I explain all this? Because when the author of Hebrews says, we have confidence in the holy places, what he's saying is no longer do we have to be afraid when we approach God. That's a big deal because uh, maybe in our culture, we think God is our homeboy or God is our friend. There's this kind of image where uh, God is such a friendly person we, that he's always near to us. He has, he's interested in us and we can be close to him. But if you read the Bible, that's not the message that you receive. If you understand anything about God's holiness and anything about your sinfulness, then the conclusion is why in the world would I be in God's presence? How in the world can I have confidence in, in God's presence? I mean, I should be terrified as I'm walking into this place. Yet the, the author says we can have confidence when we go into God's presence. Why? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So if you go to Matthew chapter 27, this is a scene where Jesus is dying on the cross and he breathes his last breath. He, he makes his final statement and he gives us his spirit. And it says in Matthew 27 verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So that curtain that I explained before that separated the holy of holies to the rest of the place, 
That was a sign, a symbol that, okay, you can't come near to God. This is, this is who you are, that God is holy and we are not. There was a clear barrier between God and people. There is a clear separation between God and people. And when Jesus died on the cross, what he did on the cross was so powerful. It was so significant that it tore down that veil. And it, was, it wasn't just a physical phenomenon, but spiritually what happened was anyone now who trusts in Jesus, anyone who believes in Jesus now can have access to the full presence of God. We can walk into the Holy of Holies with confidence because we have a mediator, a high priest who is working for us and who made the ultimate sacrifice for us, Jesus is the means in which we have access to God's presence. And that is good news. Because everything that we ever dreamed of, everything that we really want, we crave in this world, what the Bible tells us that it's all in God's presence. God is good and we desire goodness, right? We want justice. Well, God is just. We want peace, world peace. Well, God is peace. We want comfort. Well, God can comfort those who need it. We want to be healthy. Well, God is the healer. You name something that you need in your life, I can answer it that God's presence can make a difference. So through Jesus Christ, we have access to the full presence of God. The gospel is a gracious invitation that God gives to us. And it's an invitation to himself. It's really saying, do you want me? Well, here, I made a way for you. Now you can come near to me. And in light of, of this beautiful invitation, the rest of the passage gives us three commands, three exhortations that begins with the phrase, let us. Let us, let us, let us. In light of the gospel, if we are saved, if you believe that we can have confidence as we are walking to God's presence because of the blood of Jesus, if we believe that we no longer have to be afraid of God, but we have a loving God who made a way for us, that we can connect with him in such a personal, intimate way, then there are three things that we can do. The first is this. Number one, knowing that Christ, he gives us access to God's full presence, the first thing that we can do is we can draw near to God. I mean, that sounds very simple, right? But the very point of the cross was to make a way for us to God so that we can enjoy God's presence. So the, the immediate thing that we need to do is once God has been made available, we have to enjoy God. We have to draw near to him. Look at verse 22. It says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, Jesus, he opens the door so that we can have access to God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, why don't you walk in? Why don't you draw near to God? Get close to God. And this is why we have the gospel. You know, a lot of us, we have this tendency because um, we are sinful, because we commit sin in our life. Uh, even after we say that we are saved, even after we commit our lives to, to Jesus, uh, a lot of times we, we walk in a way where we are defeated, we are lifeless, we are joyless. It's, we're worried about our relationship with God. You know, is God pleased with me? Is he okay with me? Am I doing something wrong? There's this sense where we feel uncomfortable in God's presence. Maybe that's some, how some of you feel, like the things that you've been doing recently. The, this, looking at your life, you feel like, well, if I saw God face to face, I mean, I couldn't even pick up my face. Like, I have nothing to say to him, but I'm living a life that is dishonoring to him. 
a lot of times we are overwhelmed with our sin. But what the Bible is telling us today is that it's not really based on who you are or what you have done. It's not really about do you qualify to, to be loved by God. It's more about what Christ has done for you in your life. That through him that we can have access, we can have confidence to, to, to go to God, to draw near to God. And I love what it says in Hebrews 11, verse 6. It's, it's right next to it, um, that pas- our passage today, but it says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. Just let that sink in. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say without works. Without having a good life, it is impossible to please God. It says without faith, it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So two things. The act of drawing near to God itself is pleasing to God. When you seek God, when you spend time with him, when you are thirsty for him, that in itself is pleasing to God. You know, I mean, I love it when my children are behaving, when they are saying the right things and doing the right things. But it would be terrible if they are doing the right things, yet they don't want to be with me, right? That's like the worst feeling. And what the Bible is saying is the very first thing that you need to be concerned about is not your behavior. It's not having everything aligned in the right way. But what you need to be concerned about is drawing near to God. Because that in itself, that action in itself is so pleasing to God. But notice the second thing that it says. It's not just pleasing to God, but it's good for you. Because it says that, well, you need to believe when you draw near to God that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So when we draw near to God, it is for our good. God rewards those who draw near to him. The closer we get to God, the more reward that we receive. There's the blessing. There's the goodness of God there. And so it makes a difference in our life. So enjoying God's presence is the first response to the gospel. When we understand that we have access, full access to God in Jesus Christ, then we can confidently go into God's presence and enjoy him. And so that's exactly what this passage is is telling us. Draw near to God. But the second way that we can respond to the gospel is this. Don't let go. Draw near. Number two, don't let go. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold on tight. Cling on to this. Hold fast to what? The confession of our hope. Now some of you might wonder, well, I thought once you make that confession that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then you're saved. Once saved, always saved. That you don't have to worry about anything else. You can go on and live your life that you will automatically go into heaven. I thought that what, that's what it meant when in, in Romans 10, it talks about how, you know, if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, then we'll be saved. I thought that was the basic message of the gospel. And to some degree, that is true. But it also says in Hebrews chapter 2 that if we don't hold on to Jesus, we have a tendency, a nature within us that drifts away from Jesus. That if we're not careful, what we're going to do is when we believed in Jesus, when we made that decision, we left a lot of things behind to follow Jesus, right? That's what repentance is. We don't pursue the things that we loved before, but now we pursue God. But if we're not careful, what happens down the road is that our faith, it gets shaky. 
And Hebrews 2, 1 says that if we don't hold on to Jesus, then we might drift away from Jesus. Now, there are times when we actively run away from Jesus, but what this reminds us is if we're not act- active about our faith, if we are not aware of Jesus and we're not holding on to him in, on a daily basis, what it's telling us that we don't drift towards Jesus, we drift away from Jesus, that we don't grow in our faith naturally, but we kind of take a back step in, in, our, in our faith, that, that we walk away from God. And so we have to be reminded that not only do we have to draw near to God, but once we are there in the presence of God, that we have to hold fast. And that's what hope is all about, right? You believe in Jesus, you believe that he, he's your Lord and Savior, but there are times when it's really hard to believe that he's going to make a difference in your life. It's really hard, especially when all the trouble and the trials and the temptation of the world, they hit, they hit your life. You wonder really if it's worth you know, following Jesus and what hope is when the Bible says, well, let us hold on to this hope, hold fast to this hope. What it's saying is hope is this confidence that what God offers is always better. That, that's hope. That you, you believe, you are confident that what God offers, whether here or down the road, is always better. Because of that, you don't delight on the things of this world. And I gave you this illustration before. If you know that you're going to have a nice meal later on, you're not going to fill your stomach with snacks before, right? Uh, you're going to prepare your stomach. You're going to make sure that you're hungry, that your stomach is empty so that you can take in as much food as you can. But if you know that your, your supper is, is not going to be that great, that you're going to have frozen food, well, then most likely you're going to do your best to fill your stomach at that moment. That's how the Christian life works. The reason why we are filling our lives with all these different things that are not of God is because at times we don't believe that what God has in store for us is actually good. And what the Bible is telling us is remember that God, he has a plan, and what he's going to offer is always going to be better. So draw near, don't let go, but this is the part that really blows my mind. Encourage others to do the same. If you are drawing near to God, praise God. If you are holding fast in your hope, in your confession, praise God. But what the Bible tells us to do is encourage others to do the same. Verse 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And now you're probably thinking, okay, this is what you're going after, Pastor. You want us to attend Sunday services. That you want us to come to life groups. You're, you're trying to sell us in a way that tell us that you have to be involved in church. You have to come out to every meeting. And am I, am I saying that? Oh, yes, I am saying that. But the reason I'm saying that is not because if they're more in number that my salary goes up. I actually don't have that clause in my, in, in my contract where uh, more people, more offering, more money for me. No, I don't have that. You know, whether it's a lot of people, you know, it's not a lot of people. It doesn't make a difference for my personal life. But I do know that when you get involved in the church, it makes an important difference in your life. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's almost impossible to faithfully walk with God apart from the community of God. Why do we gather on Sundays? Why do we let go of all the things that we love to do on Sundays? You know, maybe having a brunch with our family, maybe having, you know, gathering with our friends, having a party. Uh, why Why do we let go of that? Why do we spend our time in life groups? Some of, some of you guys meet on a weekday evening, and to me, that's kind of crazy, right? You know, after a long day of work, you spend eight hours, nine hours working, 
And the last thing that you want to do is deal with more people. But you drive to this place. You gather with people. You, you ha- engage in conversations. You're, you're tired. You're worn out. But why do you do that? Well, it's because the Bible tells us that's, that's the thing that we should do if we believe in the gospel. Let us consider how to stir up one another. And by the way, you kind of get a sense that this is not just talking about Sunday gatherings. It's not just talking about corporate worship, but as a community, what the Bible is telling us that we need to consider one another. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 3, 13. It says this, but exhort one another every day, not just on Sundays, but every day, as long as it is called today. So the command to the believers is that you exhort one another as long as it is called today on a daily basis that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there is this command in Hebrews 3.13 where the Bible is telling us we should make sure to encourage one another, to exhort one another on a daily basis so that we would not walk in sin. And that's one of the purposes of life group. That's one of the purposes of Sunday gathering, accountability, to know that, that we have someone who's going to correct us, who's going to speak truth into our lives on a daily basis. That's the purpose of, 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 of church in a way because it is impossible for us to faithfully walk with God on our own. It's just impossible. There are so many temptations. There are so many dangerous obstacles along the way. We can easily justify and, and make, come up with excuses not to be involved with God and not to be involved with the church. And what the church of, of, of God does is we, it encourages um, us when we are down, when we are fading away, when we are drifting away. It, it's kind of a wake-up call telling us we need to come back. That's why we have one another to consider one another, to encourage one another. In verse 24, that word consider, I love that word. It's this word that says to to pay close attention to one another. It's this image where a counselor, you know, you know this when you do counseling or maybe uh, you experienced counseling before. A counselor, when they are in the session, they're not just listening and they're saying, yeah, yeah, okay, good. No, they're taking notes. They're carefully considering the circumstances and your stories and, and they're in a way analyzing and evaluating and, 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 and understanding your, your situation. At the same time, what they're doing is they're coming up with a solution. How can I help this person? How can I help this person to have more hope? You know, how can I encourage this person so that they can walk more faithfully? How can I encourage this person so they're not always depressed but they can have joy in, in their walk uh, every single day? And that's exactly what God calls us to do. When it says consider one another, it's this invitation to pay attention to one another. That the people next to us, they matter. That they're not just people that we share a space for an hour a week, but God is using these people to sharpen us so that we can encourage one another, so that we can speak truth into one another's lives. A lot of times we are all about, okay, we're going to confront someone, we're going to speak truth into someone's, someone's life, and that's the part where it says stirring up one another. The word stir up literally means to confront or to really agitate. It's this kind of aggressive words, um, kind of in your face, where you are wanting the best of the other person, so you get in that the person's face and you tell them to wake up, tell them to you know, walk in a, in a way that's honoring to the Lord. But before you can stir up one another, you have to consider one another. That if you're not close, it is really hard to communicate what is true. And so when we are making an effort, to connect with one another, to listen to one another, to understand one another, and the circumstances, the situations that after that, in light of God's word, we are able to speak truth to one another, stir one another up to love, to good works. 
Now, some of us hearing this might think, that's, that's right, I need more people to say what is true in my life. But notice the command here today is not surround yourself with people who can speak truth to you or encourage you. It says make sure you're thinking of how to encourage others within the body. The command is for you. Are you making an effort to get to know other people in this church? Are you connecting with people in a way that you're having meaningful conversations with one another? I'm not just talking about, you know, are you good enough to hang out and and have food together and enjoy one another's presence? That's important too. But there has to be a point where our conversations, they change. That it's no longer just that we have common interests that, that keeps us together. But at some point, we have to have meaningful conversations where we are able to speak into one another's lives about God, about the gospel, that we can challenge one another so that we can grow up together. That's the calling that God places on our life. Just look at all the words that we see about community in this one passage. Let us, 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 we. There's nothing about me in this passage. It's talking about how to live out the gospel, but everything is centered around we, not me. So we need the church. We need community. We need one another. Christ has given us full access to God's presence, but how do we get close to Christ? It's through the body of Christ. And until we recognize that we are always going to struggle in our faith. Some people, they read their Bible every single day. They do QT on their own. They pray on their own, and they wonder why they're struggling in their faith. Well, the Christian life was never designed to be lived out alone. If you think about the great commandment, love God, and then what is it? Love one another, love others. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, well, the way that you love one another, this is going to be a testimony to the rest of the world. By the way that you love one another, people will see that you are my disciples. Even the Great Commission we talked about uh, on our early morning prayer uh, on, on Friday, we see how that calling is not just a calling for a specific few or missionaries. That calling is for the church to make disciples. How in the world do you make disciples? Well, it's in the context of the local church. And so God, he is calling us to himself, but with other people in community. The primary way that God is going to keep us faithful to the end is through community. And that means us. So I want you guys to take a second to look around the people next to you. Because that's God's plan. That's it. You wonder how am I in the world am I going to stay faithful in a world that's pulling me apart, that's causing me to sin, that's tempting me every possible way. Well, you guys, God has given us an opportunity to gather as a church and community. And that means we need the best of each other, that we need to stir one another up in love and good works, that we need to remind one another on a daily basis how beautiful the gospel is and how we have full access to God's presence because we easily forget that. We easily stray away from that. That it is not in our natural habit where we follow God and we pursue God. No, our natural reaction in life is to drift away from God and what God has done is he has given us a body, a group of people that can keep us accountable and that we can keep accountable. And together, as we grow as a church, the Bible tells us that we can grow individually in our relationship with God too. So that's why we don't neglect to meet together. Notice that even in the first century, this was a problem. 
I mean, we say, well, individualism, self-interest, the culture that we have with all this technology, that, now, of course, people don't want to meet in person. No, this was an issue back in the first century, which tells you that it's not just our culture, but this is actually a sin issue. No, it is our natural kind of, you know, tendency to, to stray away from other people. Why do, we, why do we avoid people? Why do we just want to drift out uh, after service and, and kind of, you know, disappear? Why do we not want to go to life group? Well, it's because it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. I mean, exposing yourself to others, it takes a lot. You're sacrificing a lot. And the scariest thing about all that living in community is this, that there are areas in your life that you have to let go, that you're not completely, completely in control, that you can't control what other people think, you can't control what other people say, and that makes us uncomfortable. That's scary. But do you also know that not wanting to let go and not wanting to lose control, do you also know that that is the very definition of sin? That I want to be in control. I want to know exactly what's going to happen in my life. I want to plan everything that's going to happen in my life. That is called sin. And in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, when there was the perfect world, it wasn't just that man and woman was living in perfect harmony with one another, but we see that people were living, Adam and Eve were living in perfect harmony with God. So full access to the presence of God, loving community. What happens, chapter 3, sin enters into the world. People are deceived. Evident Eve, instead of deciding what is right uh, in God's eyes, they pursue what is right in their own eyes. And what we see is the relationship between God and man is broken. And we also see the relationship between other people, they're broken. To the point where in chapter 4, we see that these two brothers, they're having an argument and one decides to kill the other. And again, it's a cycle of sin, but it's really a cycle of broken relationships. And as people are seeking to live in isolation and just having their own way, we see that there's this mess that's been created in, in society, that people, because they want their own way, their way clashes with other people's ways, and there's this, this harmony that cr is created in society, even in the believer's community. Isolation was never God's plan. That his plan from the very beginning was that you would be fully accepted, fully um, aware of God's pre presence and you would enjoy his presence and that you would live in community with him and with one another. That was his plan and praise God that he sent his son, Jesus. And the last thing that he did, that he died on the cross, that his body was broken, it was torn apart so that the veil could be torn. Jesus himself, he was forsaken by God. He experienced isolation so that we never have to go through that again that we never have to live alone, that we never have to be separated from God, that we can be fully accepted by God. So sin is self-seeking. The gospel tells us that we need God and we need community. So the question today is this, how are you living in a way where you are encouraging others, that you are stirring other people so that they would want to walk with Jesus even more so? Are you reminding people of the hope of the gospel? Maybe for some of you, you have to make a decision to, to give your life to Jesus in the first place, to experience this full presence that is made available to us in God. Um, maybe for some of you, you have to make a decision to join a life group, to find community, not just to have a common interest, but to share your life with others so that you can be sharpened and you can sharpen others. Whatever it might be, just remember that we have Christ who gives us access to the fullness of God. We can draw near to God now. We can stay near to him now. And together we can encourage one another to do the same 
to the end of the day, to the end of the end of the world, that we have the day drawing near. Until that day, we can have confidence in the hope that we have together. Amen. Let's pray.